It is so good to be with you, Maple Ridge Alliance Church. And Steve, I remember the day we were sitting at Starbucks in Surrey, and you're going, I, I, think, I, I think I sense a call to pastoral ministry. And uh, the rest is history. Here you are. And uh, it, is, it is just so neat to see how God raises up leaders and moves the pieces around as he sees fit. And so it is a joy to be with you. I have the privilege of traveling around our province, working with churches, pastors, and boards, helping them lean into all that God is calling them to do and to be. And when Pastor Tom asked me to speak this morning, he said, tell them a little bit about what's going on in our district. And I thought, well, that's a loaded question because we're on a time crunch here. But uh, um, one of the things that came to my mind is what God is doing in our district as he is bringing churches and various ethnicities and culture groups together. And you're experiencing that here at Maple Ridge Alliance Church as you've got a Cantonese ministry here that has been birthed out of Westwood and Maple Ridge Alliance coming together. I had a call this week from our pastor in the cusp in the interior, and he said, Dwayne, you'll, you'll never believe what's going on. And this is a little church, like 60, 70 people. He goes, we planted a church just like 30 kilometers down the road in this community that didn't have a church. I was like, it's amazing how God is raising up leaders and casting a vision for gospel proclamation all over our province. We've got a Mandarin community meeting in our church in Trail, southeast corner of the province. We've got a South Asian community now that's gathering at Surrey Alliance Church, and God is raising up pastors who are coming over from India, working with students at UBC. It is really exciting to see what God is doing. He is on the move. Uh, the gospel continues to go forward. As I work with our boards um, all across the province, um, they are beginning to, well, the beginning, they are wrestling with the ongoing culture dynamics in our society, in our province, and in our country. They are trying to discern how do we, how do we lead in an increasingly complex world. So we're helping in those areas. If you want something to be praying for, pray for our General Assembly, which is a gathering of, our, of, of pastors and delegates from our, across the entire country in July in Toronto. There'll be over a thousand of us there, and that's where major decisions for the denomination are being made. So pray for wisdom and discernment. Pray for our president, Darren Herbald, as he leads us. And then pray for congregations all across our province that are trying to lean into all that God is calling them to do and to be. And it's hard. It's hard. Which leads me to this morning. I want to address um, with you an ongoing tension and a challenge that as I've been visiting churches across our province, in some way, shape, or form, a question keeps coming up. And, and boards and pastors and congregations are trying to sort it out. We are told in Scripture, that as a church, we are called to be loving. We're supposed to be loving. We are invited to embrace those around us. And the question is, is what does that look like? What does that mean in an increasingly complex world? And so in order to help us address that question, I want us to turn to Scripture. If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. If you're following along online, uh, grab your Bible app or your Bible. I'd love for you to follow along with me. Paul is writing to a very young, curious, confused church 
in Rome. And he's writing about this very thing in the latter part of Romans chapter 12. What does it mean to love well? How do we do that? You see, all of the commandments in Scripture can be broken down into two. Jesus, when asked what is the greatest commandment in the Scriptures, many of you know the answer that he gave. He refers back to something in the Old Testament called the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where he says, here's the greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8, and he says this, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. What he was saying is that the most important thing, it's, it's, it's not really a code, is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And if you want to know whether you are really loving God and loving his ways more than anything else, it will be demonstrated by your love for other people. That's the litmus test. And I think in a room like this, most of you will look at me and go, well, we get that. Dwayne, I've grown up in the church. I've heard that since I've been a little boy or a little girl. The difficulty comes in trying to determine what is this love that Paul is actually talking about. For example, I love my wife. Charlene and I have been married for over 33 years. I love my two boys and my, and my daughter-in-law. I love my granddaughter who's not born yet. We have our first granddaughter coming in like, my phone's on, like, beeping mode here. I just, I, I won't leave if my phone rings. But uh, it's, it, we're kind of at that, she's due any day, any moment now. I love my granddaughter. I haven't met her yet. I love living in Chilliwack. I love salmon fishing. I am a mass, I love the NFL. And ma many of you know that today's a very important day in the NFL. It's Super Bowl Sunday. And I have been a long time lover of the Kansas City Chiefs since I'm a little boy. And so many of you know, um, by the way, I don't know anything about Taylor Swift. I know nothing about Taylor Swift songs, but uh, I'm a, I love the Kansas City Chiefs. My house right now, my wife rolls her eyes. There's flags in the basement. I've got football helmets in the basement. Like I'm ready for the game today, but I love the Chiefs. And so when we use the term love, and we don't define what is meant by it, it becomes intangible. It becomes nebulous. It's really tough to get our hands around what is meant by the word. And it's not until we understand what love really is, in fact, what Christ's love is, that we actually can begin to live into it. And so I want to go to our text, Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 9, to help us sort this out. I'm reading from the New International Version, and this is what it says. Verse 9, Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. The list is getting long. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of, of, of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, this gets hard here, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. We're going to talk about what that means in a few minutes. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, you desire to teach us this morning. You desire to teach me. And so I ask by your spirit that you would, you would illumine what it is in these words, in this text, that you want for us today, in our families, in our personal lives, and in the lives of this church community, in this life of this church community. And so God, open up our hearts to receive. Open up our ears to hear. Holy Spirit, come. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, when you look at a, look at a list like this, it's, it's not hard to figure out what's going on. Really, Paul is describing characteristics uh, of Christian love. Oftentimes, when we talk about Christian love or what love ought to look like, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where there are very specific characteristics, very uh, specific emotions, very specific actions. And here it gets really practical as we think about the wider community of faith. The primary focus here, and it's the title of my sermon, is that we would live and we would love like Jesus. And so what does it mean for the community here at Maple Ridge Alliance Church to live and to love in an increasingly complex world like Jesus? Paul makes it abundantly clear in the text that the love that we demonstrate towards God and the love that we demonstrate towards each other will actually be the Velcro that will cause people to want to fasten themselves to Christ as they are moved by God's Spirit. Translation, the best evangelism program you can have here at Maple Ridge Alliance Church is to live in love like Jesus. It's the best evangelism program out there. And so he begins, and he encourages us about love. In verse 9, he says, and I'm, I, again, I read from the NIV, it says, your love must be sincere. In the New King James Version, it actually says, your love must be without hypocrisy. So think about that for a minute. Love with hypocrisy is not really love, is it? It's got to be without hypocrisy. The love that he is speaking about here, that Paul is speaking about here in the Greek is actually agape love. The kind of love that God demonstrates towards you and to me. It is committed, it is devoted, it is selfless, and it is unconditional. And Paul says it must be genuine and sincere. Paul says if, it doesn't, if, if it's not genuine, if it lacks sincerity... That kind of love is simply a mask. You demonstrate to somebody when you're in contact with them good favor, and the second they leave your presence or they leave the room or after church at the coffee shop down the road is when you start to talk negatively about them and you stick the sword in and you twist it a little bit because they're not in your presence anymore. That's not love, Paul says. He says our love must be sincere. 
And the word sincere just kind of rolls off our tongue in our English language. We think we know what it means. But it actually derives, is derived from two Latin words, um, sign and sera. Sign sera, which literally translated means without wax. Our love must be without wax. What does that mean? Well, in the great marketplace of the Greco-Roman world, you can imagine that there were these sculptors that would sell these beautiful marble sculptures that they had been working on for months and months and months. And they're carving out of this precious stone. And sometimes they would get to the end of their carving and there would be a flaw in the stone. And what would happen is they'd be working on the nose of this particular bust of somebody and the nose would crack off. You've spent months working on this particular sculpture, so what are you going to do? Do you throw it away? It's your livelihood. No. What you do is you pick up some of the fragments of the marble that you had chipped off, you mix them with wax, and you affix it to the marble creation that you were working on. And it looked perfect all the time until there was a very hot day. And you can imagine what happens on a hot day. There's no refrigeration back in the Greco-Roman world. And so the wax would heat up and the nose would start to fall off. Or it would drip. Or it would run. It would look awful. And so in that day, in the marketplace, things that were marketed as without wax, without imperfection that had been covered up, were marketed as sanseros or sincere products. What you see is exactly what you get. Kind of changes the whole meaning of what Paul says when he says our love must be sincere. What you see is what you get. So what would Jesus say about our love? Is it sincere? That how we interact with somebody on a Sunday morning is how we behave when we are away from them beyond Sunday or beyond the coffee shop connection that you've got with somebody throughout the week. So what does love look like? What does Jesus' love look like? And here's some characteristics that really just pop out of the text. And the first is this, and I'll move through some of these fairly quickly. But again, right in verse 9, we read, first of all, that people who love and live like Jesus are repelled by evil, and they are drawn to the things that God loves. They're repelled by evil and they're drawn to the things that God loves. In verse 9 it says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Later on in Romans chapter 16, Paul goes on and he says, be wise about what is good and be innocent about what is evil. I don't need to tell you that culturally there seems to be an accelerated program out there moving us away from the things of God. That's cause for concern. And so whether it's my parents' generation, whether it's my generation, or the generations coming up behind me, we have got to cling to the things that God claims are good. And we've got to keep ourselves from being wrapped up and enmeshed in the things that God says are evil. Now, you think about this, and this is not meant to be a trick question, but when you think about lying, is lying good or bad? 
Not a trick question. It's bad. But why is it bad? Because God declares it to be so. Stealing, good or bad? Again, not a trick question. It's bad. And not because we don't want something that somebody else might have. But it's bad because God declares stealing to be wrong. Coveting. Who in our culture would say coveting is wrong? I mean, I said today is the Super Bowl. For those of you that don't like to watch football, sometimes you like to dial in and watch the commercials. Commercials prey on the fact that our culture is built around covetous stuff, trying to get us to want things that we really don't need or that somebody else might have. But you're not going to find anything in Canadian law about coveting. We're not told not to covet. We're told not to covet because God declares it to be wrong. He says that we should be satisfied with the things that he has given us. Again, I think for most of us, these sound reasonable. But here's the interesting thing. As much as we will say that these things are wrong, and there would be agreement in this room, Jesus doesn't avoid liars. Jesus doesn't avoid thieves. He doesn't avoid covetous people. It's probably where there should be an amen. He engages them. And so engage liars, engage thieves, engage covetous people, engage one another, because in some respects, that is all of us. Everybody in a room like this has struggled in various areas of their lives. And so engage culture. Someone who's living a lifestyle you don't approve of, engage with them. You don't need to adopt it. And you don't need to approve of it. But you definitely need to love that person so that over the course of time, in relationship with that person, Lord willing, they'll see the love of God and overcome potentially a life-dominating sin struggle in their lives. And so how do you determine what is good and what is evil? Again, this is not a trick question. Simply by looking at the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ. Looking at the words from the New Testament, from the apostolic writers, from the Old Testament, from the prophets, we have got to be in the book, or we will never know what is good and what is evil. Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that we need to understand what is good and we need to cling to it. Don't get thrown off course. Don't call something that is good evil. Don't call something that is evil good. And if something is in the gray category, let it remain there unless very clearly in Scripture it says it is good or it is evil. People who live in love like Jesus are drawn to the things that Jesus loves. And they are repelled by the things that Jesus hates. Second, people who live in love like Jesus strive to be an authentic community. Verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in love. And the word here is now not agape love. It is phylos love, brotherly love, family love. And and Paul is implying here that if we can't measure up to brotherly love, we will never measure up to an agape love, which is a much higher standard. And the way we discern our love for one another is by putting the needs of others ahead of our own. 
Verse 10 goes on to say, honor one another above yourself. In fact, three times in the NIV, in verses 10 through 16, we see these words, one another. And if you study those word, that word grouping over the course of the entire New Testament, you will find they appear over 25 times. One another. The Christian life is lived in community with one another. And, and let me suggest to us this morning that spending 75 minutes together on a Sunday morning in a pretty sanitary environment where things are really not coming into clashing conflict with one another, we're not coming into conflict with values and tensions and with people issues, that is not what Paul is referring to when he says we ought to be one anothering. One anothering is done in authentic community where relationships are forged. And in my 53 years of life, I have come to understand that forging relationships is typically messy and it's hard because God in his infinite wisdom has allowed us to be different. I don't know if you ever have this experience in your life or maybe I'm an outlier here, maybe in your marriage or in your job or on a team you play on and, and you think, you know, if there were just more people like me, everything would be good. I mean, we wouldn't say it, but come on, we probably think it. If they would just think like me. Well, let me remind us, including me, that everything wouldn't be fine. One of any of us in this room is more than enough. We don't, you don't need two of me. I, I can assure you, you don't need two of me. But God in his infinite wisdom understands that through the diversity of the body of Christ, in unity around the gospel, we can effectively, in the power of the Spirit, see the kingdom expand. You and I need others to shape the rough edges that we have. And you may need to be an influencer that helps others conform to the image of Christ that we have all been made in. And apart from real community, you will never have to test whether or not you are living into the kind of love that Paul is calling us to step into. People who live in love like Jesus strive to be an authentic community. Third, people who live in love like Jesus are passionate for the things of God. Verse 11 says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be diligent, work hard, be zealous, be passionate. And the term literally in the Greek here is, I want your love for Jesus to boil over. I want it to boil over. And when we think about this phrase boiling over, what is the opposite of boiling over? Being lukewarm. And Jesus' greatest rebuke in the New Testament is not of the religious leaders and their hypocrisy. His greatest rebuke in the New Testament was to the church and their apathetic hearts. The fact that they were lukewarm. And we read this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. He's speaking to the church at Laodicea. He says, I wish you were either hot or cold. It's almost as though Jesus was saying something like this, that even if you were vehemently against me, at least I know that when you give your heart to me, you could take that same passion and use it to advance the kingdom of God. I mean, think about the passion 
that new believers that we know display in their lives. Those of you who have been involved in Alpha Ministry, you know this. When somebody gives their life to Christ, there's a passion that is around them that is palpable. It's amazing. They're on fire. I remember leading this person to the Lord in my office years ago when I was pastoring in Yarrow, and the second they gave their life to Christ, she she stood up in my office and she goes, I need to be baptized on Sunday. (laughs) Okay, you haven't taken the class yet. Um, Okay. There was a passion there. But for so many of us, and I throw myself into this camp, we understand the love of God. We've grown up in the church, or we've come to faith many years ago, And yet we tend to live in this apathetic way, thinking that if we have been doing church for an hour or so on a Sunday morning, that's living passionately to advance God's kingdom. And let let me remind us that when Jesus looked at the church in Laodicea, he said these words, I will spit you out of my mouth. In fact, better translated in the Greek, I will vomit you out. And as I understand that reflex in our body, it only happens with one of two things. Either you're disgusted or you're being poisoned. Apathetic, lukewarm Christianity is disgusting to Jesus. And it's poisoning us, the church in general. He wants us, his kids, to be on fire. Everybody in this room is passionate about something. Maybe you're passionate like I am about your team. Maybe you could care less. You're passionate about your hobbies or your job or your family, and there's nothing wrong with those passions. But do you love Jesus more than those things? When people look at us, do they see people who are on fire for Christ? Like, do they? Do the people in your neighborhood or the complex that you live in, do they see that? Do your family members see that? The people in your workplace, do they see it? Because that's what we're called to do and to be. Demonstrating a real love for God and a real love for others. Fourth, people who live in love like Jesus endure hardship. Verse 12 says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, and we can rejoice in hope because we know that when we place our hope in Christ, he is faithful. We sang about that this morning. We endure in the midst of affliction and tribulation because, we flip back a few chapters to Romans chapter 5, we know that God uses difficulty in our lives to produce patience, and patience produces character, and ultimately it is character that produces hope. And so we know that when things aren't going the way we want them to go or they haven't turned out the way we thought they should turn out or at least not on our timeline, we can trust that God has a plan and he's working out things in our lives for the good of his kingdom. We endure hardship. Fifth, people who live in love like Jesus are generous and hospitable. You see, authentic love that we've already talked about always shares resources. Always. In fact, hospitality, literally translated, is this. Love for strangers. Love for strangers. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, you know the text, when we love the least, the lost, the lonely, those who are on the outside, on the margins, 
It's as though we are loving him. And so Jesus reminds us that real, genuine love takes of our resources and it gives to the needs of others to advance the kingdom of God. And I don't know each of your stories, but I know a little bit about what's going on at Maple Ridge Alliance Church through Tom and Steve and Kyle and some of your staff here. And I know many of you consistently reach out in tangible ways in this community. Keep it up. Especially when it involves sacrifice or perhaps great sacrifice. Paul is really, really clear. Without being generous, without being hospitable, we are not living into the kind of love that he's writing about here in Romans chapter 12. If we only show love to our family members or those who are close to us or those who agree with our ideologies, that is not the kind of love that Paul is talking about here in the text. Real love, Christ's love, shows love to strangers or shows love to people who may be on the other side of a particular issue in our lives. People who live in love like Jesus are generous and hospitable. Six, people who live in love like Jesus, this is where it starts really getting hard, are kind to enemies. Ouch. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse. In fact, it's mentioned twice, and anytime something's repeated in Scripture, we ought to pay attention. We need to be showing kindness to enemies rather than seeking to harm them. It is a uniquely Christian virtue. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus reminded us that we've been told that we should hate our enemies and love our neighbor. And Jesus says, I'm actually going to raise the standard. You are going to love your enemy. Yikes. You're going to bless them. You're going to pray for them. You're actually going to do good for them. And there's a part of me, I'm not sure it's a big part, but there's a part of me that thanks God for that. I thank God that he challenges me to do something that seems really unnatural. I also thank God that he didn't say in the text that I ought to make my enemy my best friend. He didn't say go to that person, give them a big hug, and, and, and really demonstrate you love them, even though what's going on inside of you is completely the opposite. That's not what he said. But have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been really hurt by somebody? Somebody that's disappointed you? Life is like that in a fallen world, and those can be some of the most difficult people on the planet to show kindness to. I remember years ago when I was pastoring at Yarrow, I was there for about 18 years, so I knew most people, um, and I remember a particular person that I had, I had kind of, journeyed through a lot of ministry with, starting in like middle school, high school, adult ministries. They were core to the church. And they turned, and they said some things about me behind my back that were extremely hurtful. They were cutting. And the wound was deep, and the wound lasted for a long time. And I had kind of journeyed through it with my elders and with my family and with some people that were close to me. And then about a year later, and this person had exited the church. About a year later, I was in a Starbucks and I was getting a coffee and it was a long line. And who was about four people in front of me? This person. 
And God clearly said to me while I was standing in that line, Dwayne, I want you to step forward in the line. I want you to buy them a coffee and have a conversation. I said, nope, not going to do that. And he reiterated what he was asking me to do. And then I thought, you know, that's a great idea, God. I'm going to buy them a coffee and maybe I'll drop something in their cup. Because <laughs> that would make sense. That's the way I was feeling. God, you're good. You, you got the greatest ideas. This, this is going to work out well. You know, showing kindness and blessing to somebody that we are in a disagreement with or who has hurt us seems completely unnatural to our flesh. But when we do it, it affirms for us that we are seeking to live in love like Christ. And so, you know, quick ending to the story. Yes, I stepped forward. Yes, I bought them a coffee. No, I didn't put anything in their coffee. And we ended up having a great conversation. We're not best friends, but we were able to work through some things. Kindness to our enemies. Seven, people who live in love like Jesus are compassionate and humble. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. This is speaking of empathy as a congregation, as a family of God. Feeling another person's feelings, entering into their experience, both good and bad. In fact, Paul would write to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he would say, when one member of the body is exalted... When one is a reason to celebrate, we all celebrate. Not unlike Deanna this morning. We're celebrating. It was a great moment for us as a congregation. But when one is hurting, we should all feel their pain. Which implies that we know one another. Which implies what we said earlier, that we are an authentic community. That we get to know people's stories. And then my last thought is this. People who live in love like Jesus are gracious and peaceable. Verses 17 to 21, we find this challenge. This idea about being peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the sons of God. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't worry about getting vengeance. Jesus says, vengeance is mine. In other words, he says, I'll take care of it. Perfect vengeance in a perfect way. And there's a part of me that's really comforted by that. That God would deal with people way better than I could ever deal with people. Because if I really think like Jesus, I will understand that what God wants to do is to restore people, to redeem people, so that they could receive that love and then share that love with others. And you know, the first time I read this section, I thought, this is really cool. And that thought about, you know, heaping coals on somebody's head, uh, that's, that, that's kind of that's neat. You know, I've got an issue with somebody or someone's got an issue with me and I'm just going to behave nicely and they're going to go away feeling bad. I mean, that, that's kind of what most people think about this. If I just respond in a way that is different than they expect, then they're going to leave and go, they'll, they'll feel bad. That has nothing to do with what's going on in the text here. Here's historically what's going on. Back in first century world, fire was core to everything that went on in the home. You cooked with it. It heated water for cleaning. Um, it kept you warm. And so when somebody's fire would go out, it was huge. It was a big, big deal. 
And so when your neighbor, who had been your enemy, comes to your house and says, my fire has gone out, can I borrow some coals to restart my fire? And typically it was the woman that would come over and she would have this earthen vessel on her head and you would take some coals from your fire and put them onto the earthen vessel on her head and she would go back to her house and restart her fire. Even though what you wanted to do with those coals, maybe throw them at her, but now your enemy has become a friend because you overcame evil with good. And you helped create a bridge so that maybe, depending on the story, they might come to know Jesus. I want to invite the team to come forward. But Maple Ridge Alliance Church this is just a long litany and a list of, of things that we're called to do. But really, at the end of the day, this is the mission that we're on. This is the mission. We love God and we live his word. We know him and we seek to make him known. And we seek to make him known by living and loving like Jesus. And so I want to encourage you. Your spouse is not going to have a problem today. If you decide when you get home that you are going to live and love like Jesus. Your kids, when you get home, are not going to have a problem. If you decide today that I am going to step into this and I am going to live and love like Jesus. Your kids are not going to say to you, Dad, we, we love you just the way you are, you know, grumpy. Um, the people in your workplace, the people in our schools, the people in our neighborhoods, the people in our community who think differently than we do are not going to have a problem if we, the congregation here at Maple Ridge Alliance Church, start to live and love like Jesus more. So are you up for it? That's the call. That's my prayer. Do you stand with me? Jesus, you're here, you're present, you're working, you're active. You say clearly in your, in your word that as, as the word is preached, it doesn't return void, it, it has power. And so I don't know. I, I don't know what each individual person in this room needs to take away from this passage this morning. But I do know that you've called us to live like you and to love like you. And so whatever that looks like in our lives, in our ministries, in, in, in this congregation, Jesus, would you work that out? Holy Spirit, would you come and, and, and fill our lives anew, afresh? And may we leave this place proclaiming the name of Jesus, the truth that you have come, you have lived, you have died, you have rose again, you have built up your church. You have sent your spirit to the church to proclaim your name. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And we give you praise. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.